Good morning. We are in a series called His Name Shall Be Called. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Isaiah 9-6. That's where we're going to start today. That's where we're starting. And this is actually a prophecy about Jesus' birth. Uh, This was prophesied 700 years before his birth. And Isaiah says here, For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So it's my honor to talk about our Mighty God today, because he is uh, absolute in authority, and he governs all. Isaiah 46 tells us that birds hunt because God commands them to, that, that men move from place to place at the command of God. Um, that kings rise and are crushed at the will of God, that oceans roar at his commands, that trees clap, the mountains quake, and they do so at his word. He is absolutely authoritative. He is mighty. He is all three governments, uh, branches of government in one with no appeal after him. He is awesome. Uh, He is absolutely authoritative and mighty. He is powerful. His throne is high high and exalted. He's not on a throne with a bunch of other guys. Uh, There's no one that can out-decree God. There's no one with veto power when it comes to the decision-making of God. He's absolutely omnipotent, all-powerful, and all-controlling. There's no one or nothing that can trump his command. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is a mighty God. Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. And he has this beautiful scripture that talks about how great and how mighty God is. In Jeremiah 32.17, and it's interesting because he starts with the word, uh, Ah, Ah, it's this Hebrew word for, it means like a painful groan. Ah, right? Okay, you try it. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, like you mean it. It's painful. Yeah, pretend like you're trying to turn left and, you know, had to sit through one more red light out of 7 and 14. Ah, you know, it's that kind of thing. So, well, that, that, that's how he starts the verse. Then he goes in to say, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He's absolutely mighty God. But, power without character is scary, isn't it? Right? Power without wisdom and judgment is terrifying. So, so when you have someone who has a ton of power with no wisdom or judgment, you get a tyrant, right? Okay, so I want to look at the wisdom and judgment of God in light of his might today. Because confidence in the character of God is the foundation for our faith. So understanding the nature and the character of God is where our faith rests. So to do that, I want to look at a couple chapters later in Isaiah. So turn over to Isaiah 11, a couple chapters to the right. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. That says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and his roots... Uh, From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Change for a dollar bucket when flying. The 
The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Neither They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. So Isaiah 11 tells us about a great king who's going to be born, a mighty God. But this God is characterized by justice and wisdom. So, so let's look at his justice and wisdom in light of his might today. Right? So, look, so look back at verse 4. This talks about his justice. It says in verse 4, With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. When, he, when you kind of first look at that, when it says he's going to judge the needy, the way it comes out in English isn't very good. Uh, usually to judge someone means to condemn them. Uh, that's not what this means. This literally means he will make things just for the needy. Um, he will put things right. He will make the crooked straight. When it, when, he says, when it says he will give decisions for the poor on the earth, again, it doesn't come out real well in English, but the word poor there is the word that means downtrodden, people without power. He will give decisions for them. So what it actually means is he's going to stand in their place and exercise his power. He's the great equalizer. He, he's going to identify with the poor and give decisions on their behalf and use his power to make things right for them. So, so at this point, you might be going, all right. He's like a civil servant, some kind of like king who's come and going to create social justice. Uh, and that's great, right? But, but then the next part of the scripture tells us what's really happening here. So look at verse 6. These are very famous verses. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. This, this poetry is saying that this mighty God is not just going to make the world a little better. Right? He's going to get rid of death. He's going to get rid of disease. He's going to get rid of violence. He's going to get rid of suffering. He's going to make everything right. He will bring justice to it all with his might. Almighty God is absolute in power, but cares about the poor and identifies with the, with the needy. Uh, Jesus' parents, when they went to get him circumcised at the temple, the Bible says that they gave two birds as a sacrifice. So, so back then, back in those days, the, the sacrifice you gave depended on your income. The poorest people gave two birds. He was born into the poorest of families. He did not come as a general or as a philosopher, but as a carpenter's son. And look, look at his, you know, you kind of look at his priorities. When he ministered, he didn't just preach the gospel. He also fed the hungry he healed the sick. He raised the dead. So what's, what's this mean for us? It means, among many other things, that uh, that has to be our priority too. So not only must we be concerned about the poor, but we can't do it from afar. Jesus didn't come from afar. He participated. right? He, in some non-patronizing way, he participated. We as the church need to come alongside and we need to be involved with the lives of the poor. We need to use our power to personally become deeply involved with, in the lives of the poor, coming alongside in a humble, non-patronizing way, because that's what Jesus did. And I could kind of spend all day on that point, but I need to move on. Number one, our mighty God is just. 
And secondly, he is wise. So look at verse 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might. Notice along with might goes counsel. These two things often go together in the Bible, counsel and might. Either on their own doesn't work, right? Might without counsel or wisdom is dangerous. Wisdom without, with no might is useless. It means not only does he have the power to do what, he should, what should be done, but he knows exactly what to do. He knows the best way to get it done, as well as having the power to get it done. It also says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears. That's another metaphor for wisdom. Uh, why? Well, think about the most stupid decisions uh, or choices you've made in life, the most foolish things that you've ever done. Right? Almost always it's because it went on appearances. It looked fun. It, they looked good. She looked good. He looked good. Right? Everything seemed fine. It didn't look past the natural and see the wisdom. But Jesus has perfect wisdom. The wisdom of God is one of the major themes at Christmas. When you, when you take a, a look at the Christmas passage, one of the things that's always part of the Christmas story is the wise men, right? They come and bow down and offer gifts. Why is that always a part of the story of Christmas? I'd say it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor. It happened, yes, but it also symbolizes that the wisdom of the world pales before the wisdom of God. It bows to it. Everything Jesus does turns the conventional wisdom of the world on its head. So let me give you an example. Let, let's say you had some goals for your life. Okay? Let's say we sat down for coffee and I said, what are the goals for your life? And, and you were like, well, you know, I want to be, be so successful that 2,000 years from now, virtually everybody in the world would know my name. Okay? Uh, secondly, I would like a quarter of all the people of the world 2,000 years from now to center their entire lives on me. Um, thirdly, I would like my teaching to be seen 2,000 years from now as the single most important body of thought in the history of the world. Uh, and I would like to have two or three major civilizations based on my person and my work and my teaching. That'd be considered pretty successful, right? Uh, so you tell me that. So I say, all right, so how do we get you there, Tiger? You know, uh, let's start, let's start planning. And so we, so we get out a whiteboard and we start, we start writing down a plan. Okay. Number one, uh, let's make sure that you spend your entire life basically in some small out of the way village, right? Number two, um, don't have a career in any sort of major city or cultural center. Um, make sure you totally stay outside of any economic, political, social, or academic power. You know, in fact, make sure you don't know anybody in those networks. Um, you know what? Uh, avoid those things almost completely, right? And, um, uh, surround yourselves with people that have all kinds of issues. And, and then, here, you know, how about we, we follow that plan for like three years, and then we really make our move. After three years, let's get you arrested and executed in disgrace. That's our plan. It doesn't seem like the best plan, right? Nobody would make that their strategy, but that was God's plan. God went about it in a completely different way. Why? Because it's an affront to the wisdom of the world. It goes against their paradigm of success and what creates success and what brings about world-changing influence. Jesus did it in all the wrong way. Why? Because the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. To be great, you have to humble yourself. 
you know, let me, let me give you an, uh, one other way in which Christmas goes against kind of the paradigms of the world. All right. <clears throat> Christmas is a miracle. The story of Christmas is that Jesus Christ was born into the world, that the Son of God was born to a virgin. It was a, a miraculous birth. Um, let me tell you kind of another paradigm the world has. Uh, about 100 years ago, there was this huge division inside the Christian churches and Christian institutions of North America and Europe. And what many people started saying was, uh, all the smart people now know that everything has a scientific explanation. Um, everything has a natural cause and miracles can't happen. The supernatural doesn't happen. Therefore, uh, we're going to have to change Christianity if, we're gonna, if it's going to survive. Uh, one of the problems you know, we have is this book is filled with miracles. Uh, if Christianity is going to survive, we have to kind of find a way of boiling the Bible down to ethical principles that everybody can accept. Uh, we should, you know, love one another, work for social justice. We should just kind of understand that all people are children of God. That's fine. We can't believe in the supernatural. Jesus Christ being born of a virgin. We can't believe in the resurrection. We can't believe in healings. We can't believe that everybody needs to be miraculously converted through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't believe in those things. No smart people are going to want to come to our church unless you get rid of the supernatural. You have to get rid of miracles. So that caused a great division. So many churches went in that direction. Here's what we know. A hundred years later, the churches and the Christian institutions that embraced the wisdom of the world are all in steep decline. Many of these are in America. Yet, Christianity is growing like crazy across the world in places nobody ever thought it would because it's a supernatural religion. In about a hundred years, Africa went from about 5% Christian to 50% Christian. Korea went from 0 to 40% Christian in about 100 years. China is in the process of doing something similar now. The supernatural Christianity is changing the world. When the smart people said, if, you know, if, if we want the world to embrace Christianity, we have to get rid of supernatural elements, uh, it just has to be ethical principles, just kind of live a good life and all that stuff, you know what it did? It turned the Christianity that was left, Christianity that was left, into a kind of a self-improvement religion. You have to suck it up. You have to pull it together. And that only works for people in prosperous, comfortable countries. What about the poor and the marginalized of the earth? You know, what about most of the people in the world? The message of Christmas is that God has miraculously punched a hole in the barrier between heaven and earth. He has broken into time and space, and now there's hope. Now there's mercy. Now there's power. That's something that changes lives. Over and over again, the world looks at Christianity and says, come on, get with a program. No smart, respectable people are going to accept you unless you get with a program, unless you change with the times, unless you get rid of this and this and this. And the world has always laughed at Christianity. Yet, in the end, God always gets the last laugh. The world has always said, we're wise and you're foolish. But in the end, the wisdom of the world is shown as foolishness. And Christianity will continue to grow century after century, millennium after millennium, because it's characterized by the wonderful, foolish wisdom of God, which we see very clearly in, this, in the manger. You know, the mighty God coming in the most helpless, humble way possible. There is glory in the manger. And very few saw it. And one of my heroes of the faith is Paul, the apostle. 
He wrote a lot of the New Testament. And Paul had a weakness. He had some sort of handicap. And he asked God, please take this away from me. Not once, not twice, but three times. He's, he's knocking on God's door. He's saying, take it away, take it away. And God responds to him in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9. And this is God speaking. He says to Paul, and he says, My grace is sufficient for you, my power, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul replies, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul, one of the greatest men that ever lived on the earth, this is what he brings it down to. He says, for when I am weak, I am strong. You see, it's the upside down kingdom. It's the might of God demonstrated in what seems to be foolishness. It's the strength of you and I demonstrated in what seems to be weakness through Jesus. It's, it's a supernatural and diametrically opposite opposite the way of the world's paradigms. It's why Jesus would always say things like, to those who have eyes to see, to those who have ears to hear, it's a work of the Holy Spirit in order to understand this upside-down kingdom of God. Christmas is it's category-breaking for the world. right? The world understands two kinds of religions really well. Uh, they're nice and flat. They're nice and simple. They understand a religion of wrath. You know, a religion of wrath is a religion in which there's, there's God's law, the Ten Commandments or whatever, and if you're good enough, God will, will bless you and will take you to heaven. If you're bad, wrath comes on you. The world understands that kind of religion. It's very simple. It's very black and white. There are good people. You try to be one of the good people. There are bad people. We hate the bad people. You know, God's going to have wrath on the bad people. It's nice and simple. Everybody understands that. The other kind of religion is a religion of acceptance, complete acceptance. Uh, that view sees God as just kind of a spirit of love in the world. I believe in a God of love, it says. You, know, you have to decide what's right or wrong for you. You shouldn't tell anybody else what, what, that their choices are wrong. Basically because we, you know, we have a God of love, we just accept everybody. Everybody's included. Everything's acceptable. We accept everyone. And the world understands that kind of religion too. Wrath religion and total acceptance religion. But Christmas shows that Christianity is neither of those. Why? Because both of those are basically religions of self. Those are religions that are just about you. In both cases, you summon it up. You make the decisions. You decide what's right or wrong for you. You do it. If you're in a religion of wrath, it's up to you to be good. If you're in a religion of acceptance, it's a, that's a self-improvement religion, so you improve yourself. It only works for a few people in the world who are living very comfortable, comfortable lives. Christianity is much deeper and multidimensional than that. Why is that? Because the one born in a manger is not just human, and he's not just divine. He's God and man. What that means is, first of all, he's not just one more religious founder, one more prophet or sage come to tell you how to find God. You know, there's, there's this very extremely, you know, this extremely popular idea out there that everybody finds God in their own way. You know, there's lots of ways up the mountain. But we all get to the top, right? You find your, your way, I'll find my way. Can I say that's a very arrogant idea? That you can make your way to God. No, he had to make a way to you. Right? Our mighty God came as a person to make a way for us. He's God come to find you. 
He's the mighty God come to die. That's why he came weak, to go to the cross. It's not just a religion of wrath, and it's not just a religion of acceptance. It's a religion of grace, and grace is costly love. It's much more powerful than simple acceptance. Acceptance is cheap. Grace is costly. And understand, there, there is wrath. Well, yeah, there, there is. There's wrath on sin. You know, we aren't living like we should. It says, you know, it says so. There's, there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of injustice. There's selfishness and pride in our hearts. There's, everybody has done things we deserve to be condemned for. Therefore, there is wrath. There is wrath on our sins. And if God was simply a God of unlimited power with no love or wisdom or judgment, then we'd be in a ton of trouble. But because God is a God of grace and mercy and love and wisdom, God comes into the world and goes to the cross himself and takes the punishment we deserve. He satisfies the wrath. And he does it at cost to himself. Now when I look at that, costly love, not just wrath, not just acceptance, but God's love satisfying his own wrath. Grace and mercy for all those who put trust in him. When I see God doing that, that changes me. That transforms my heart. If I embrace that, that transforms me. That he would love me like that. That's a faith for everybody. That's the reason it's so universal. That's the reason it's spreading like it is. This is the wonderful love of God. Christmas means the wisdom and might of God has been revealed. He has come to do something you couldn't do for yourself. He has come to miraculously break into the world. Paul said, if anybody thinks he is wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 4, Paul is writing and he says, My message and my preaching... We're not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on what? God's power. I'm an ordinary guy. I know. I heard those audible gasps. I know. It's surprising. The the actual word for uh, ordinary is idiotase. It means idiot. I'm an idiot. So maybe you're ordinary too, just like me. Uh, But something extraordinary happens when Jesus' power comes in and works through you. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, chose 12 ordinary people, fishermen, tax collectors, men that had nothing going for them in the world. They weren't Pharisees or Sadducees. They weren't some spiritual leaders. And he took those 12 ordinary people, and when the power of Jesus worked through them, they did extraordinary things and changed the world. I love the fellowship because we are just ordinary people who know a mighty God. And look what God did through 12 people who are willing to allow God's power to work through them. We may be ordinary people, yet, as we allow Jesus' power to work in us and to change us, to make us more like him, to work for us, to heal us, to bring signs and wonders and miracles, our mighty God is glorified. Because in our weakness, we are strong, right? Amen. Let's Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that at Christmas your wisdom was revealed. And it shows the wisdom of the world to be pale and thin and weak. We ask that you would teach us how to follow you, our mighty God, in the way of wisdom. Give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Give us a spirit of counsel and might. 
teach us not how to, to go on appearances, but to know how things really are. Most of all, help us to embrace that remarkable wisdom that was revealed to us in the gospel and began on, on Christmas Day, Lord. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.